0: Israel-Palestine conflict, a century-old struggle over a tiny but historically significant region, remains steeped in religion, politics, and shifting borders. Covering biblical times, Ottoman rule, British occupation, Arab-Israeli wars, and decades of conflict, the ever-fluid boundaries of Israel reflect the shifting tides of power politics in the Middle East. Is all this a fulfillment of Bible prophecy? Now for our host, Bill Petrie. I have Christian friends who are decidedly pro-Israel. They cheer every move Israel makes and applaud America when it stands with Israel. And they boo Western media and American politicians That dare to criticize Israel. For them, Israel can do no wrong. Israel is a modern miracle, the fulfillment of biblical promises, God's holy nation with a divine right to the land that they are in. But then, I have Christian friends who just do not follow the same script. They speak of Israel Palestine or sometimes just Palestine, but not Israel. They advocate for Palestinian refugees and speak out against Israeli settlement on Palestinian lands. They highlight the Palestinian casualties in Gaza and downplay Israeli losses. They cringe when America stands uncritically with Israel for them. Israel is just another nation. As Christians, how should we think about Israel? There are no simplistic answers to this question. It is complicated and contentious. And, I dare say, if one does not know how to rightly divide the word of truth, they will always err and not have a full grasp of what is happening in relationship to Israel. I want to start with some history. The Palestinian crisis, like many of the conflicts in our world today, has its roots in a global event that started over 100 years ago, the First World War. The so-called war to end all wars was in fact the war that spawned a century of wars and counting. Before World War I, much of the Middle East was part of the Ottoman Empire and ruled from Turkey. The war saw the end of that centuries-old empire, and the result for the Middle East was extreme instability that has remained to this day. All the victorious nations came together to create the League of Nations, the forerunner to the United Nations, and the United Kingdom was given charge of the land of Palestine. Included in this charge was this mandate to establish a national home for the Jewish people. It being clearly understood that nothing should be done which might prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. Meanwhile, over in Europe, Germany was left demoralized after the war. Strong voices spoke out from the rubble with brash promises of Germany's rise to prominence once again. The strongest of these voices, Adolf Hitler, in his National Socialist German Workers' Party, the Nazis. By 1933, a mere 15 years after the First World War, Hitler was in power, and Nazi socialist fascist policies were made law and implemented with frightening speed. This, of course, led directly to World War II. Once the smoke had cleared after this next global war, the world was horrified at what Hitler had done. 11 million undesirables killed in Hitler's Holocaust, including over 6 million Jews. This led to a sudden increase in sympathy for the Jewish people and their plight. Which in turn added fuel to a Zionism that had been growing for decades. It was this precise mix of ingredients the instability of the Middle East in the twilight of the British Empire, the horror of the Holocaust under Hitler's Nazi Germany, and Zionist dreams of an independent Jewish state that led to the creation of the modern state of Israel in 1948. The land of Palestine, however, was to be shared. Up until World War II, there were a few Jewish settlements in Palestine. At the beginning of the war, less than 30% of the total population living on about 5% of the land. It was mostly inhabited, though rather sparsely, by native Palestinians, Arabs, who had lived for centuries under the Ottoman Empire, mostly Muslim, though some were Christian. Under the plan proposed after the war, Jews, who had been without a state of their own for centuries, were given roughly half the land of Palestine, and hundreds of thousands began to stream there from around the world. The other half, was for the native Palestinians, but involved the displacement of some from their home regions. Newly formed Israel agreed to the land partition, but the surrounding Arab nations did not, and immediately war broke out. Between 1948 and 1967, Israel took his spoils of war another roughly 25% of the land of Palestine. Displacing hundreds of thousands of native Palestinian, their descendants, still refugees today, such as forced displacement happened both ways, by the way, as hundreds of thousands of Jews fled Arab nations to Israel. And since 1967, Israel has unilaterally settled thousands of Israelis within that one quarter of the land that is still Palestinian. Today, most Palestinians in the land live in the tiny sliver along the Mediterranean coast that is known as Gaza, or in the West Bank on the eastern side of Israel. To put it mildly, the land is disputed, and the solutions seem remote. Once again, as Christians, what are we to make of this? How should we think about modern Israel? I want you to know that I am not attempting to solve the Palestinian crisis or give a surefire plan for Mideast peace. Rather, I want to walk through a few thoughts that should shape the way we as Christians think about Israel and Palestine. I have presented the problem with a very quick overview of the origins and history of modern Israel and the Palestinian crisis. Now I will make two claims. First, the modern nation of Israel is not the heir of God's promises, of God's covenants to ancient Israel. And as followers of Jesus seeking first God's will in this present Gentile dispensation of grace, we are called to seek the good of all peoples, including both Israelis and Palestinians equally. Second, God is not dealing with the nation of Israel today, but rather, he is dealing with the body of Christ, the church, of this present dispensation. Let us start with my first claim. The modern nation state of Israel is not the heir of God's covenants To ancient Israel. I know it is tempting to think it is. It is true that there are some strong statements made to Israel in the Old Testament. Statements which are reiterated in one way or another in the New Testament. Consider these two passages. Romans chapter 9 verses 4 and 5 states, Who are Israelites? Whose is the sonship, and the glory, and the covenants, and the legislation, and the divine service, and the promises? Whose are the fathers, and out of whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all? God be blessed for the eons. Amen. And in Romans chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, we read this As to the evangel, indeed, they are enemies because of you. Yet as to choice, they are beloved because of the fathers. For unregretted are the graces and the calling of God. It is true. That modern Israel was founded to be a home for the Jewish people, a haven from anti Semitic oppression, quite an amazing story to be sure, after Hitler's attempted genocide of the Jews. But the modern nation state of Israel is not the heir of God's covenants to ancient Israel. And here are a couple of reasons why. First, it is simply wrong to equate modern Israel with ancient Israel. They are two different things entirely. Ancient Israel was a theocratic monarchy and covenant with Yahweh, a covenant centered on the Torah, the law of Moses. Modern Israel, while making special provision for Jewish citizenship, And drawing on Jewish ideals and virtues claims, or at least aims, to be a secular liberal democracy. It makes no official claim to be in a divine covenant and does not have the Torah as the basis of its laws. Just as many people equate Palestinian with Muslim, so many people equate Israeli with Jewish. But both equations are false. As for the Palestinian equal Muslim equation, there is in fact a small but significant Palestinian Christian community. And as for the Israeli equal Jewish equation, the ethnic and religious demographics of Israel are much more complex than this. Around 20% of Israelis are Arab. Most of those are practicing Muslims. And over 40% of Jewish Israelis identify themselves as secular Jews, Jews by ethnicity only, not by religion. It was ancient Israel, a theocratic, tribalistic society. That became a monarchy that God brought into covenant with himself through Moses. I am glad that the modern nation of Israel strives to be a liberal democracy, but that means it is not the equivalent of ancient Israel. But even if modern Israel could be equated with ancient Israel, it's still would not be the heir of God's covenants to ancient Israel because the biblical writings themselves state otherwise. I want to sketch out some of this biblical theology with a special focus on the Apostle Paul's angle on things, since he is the apostle to the Gentiles, and he is the apostle of this present dispensation of the grace of God. The statements to ancient Israel go back to Abraham. According to Genesis 12, they will be repeated and expanded in Genesis chapters 15 and 17. God makes a two-part covenant to Abraham. God covenants to bless Abraham with many descendants and with provision and second, protection and land, yes, land for him and his descendants. And in addition, God makes a promise that is not part of a covenant to bless all the peoples of the earth through Abraham and his singular seed. And I'll have more to say about this in a little bit. Both parts of this covenant and that promise are crucial. And they point to an important biblical pattern. God blesses the few to bring blessing to the many. God can even bless just one person—Abraham, David, or Jesus—to bring blessing to all people. God never blesses people simply so they can hoard it to themselves, so they can have privileged status with God or before others. God blesses people so that through them, God can bless others. This idea is repeated in the next big covenant that God makes, the covenant with Israel given through Moses. This is the covenant that created ancient Israel as a nation. In this covenant, God repeats the same covenant to Abraham. God will bless Israel with people, protection, provision, and land. Yes, still land. And they are in turn to be a blessing to the nations around them this is the idea behind god calling them a holy nation and a royal priesthood is a covenant with them exodus chapter 19 verses 3 through 6 reads this way and moses went up unto god and the lord called unto him out of the mountain saying thus shalt thou say to the house of jacob and tell the children of israel Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So we see they are separated out from the nations and specially blessed by God in order to be the priests for the nation, for the nations, actually, mediating God's blessing to the world through the law of Moses but this covenant through Moses was conditional. With Abraham, God gave a conditional covenant, but he also gave a straight-up promise. That straight-up promise was regarding all people being blessed through Abraham's singular seed, which according to Galatians 3.16 is Jesus Christ. Abraham, Abraham's covenant in relation to the land and a nation was conditional. Moses was conditional also, based on their obedience. With Israel, God put a condition on the blessings. If Israel obeys God's law, then God will do these things. Just go back and reread Exodus 19, verse 5 to see this. And according to ancient Israel's own prophets, Israel broke the covenant. Consider Jeremiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, and I will read this little bit of a lengthy passage. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Hear ye the words of this covenant, and speak unto the men of Judah, and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Cursed be the man that obeyeth not the words of this covenant which I commanded your fathers in the day that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice, and do them according to all which I command you. So shall ye be my people, and I will be your God, that I may perform the oath which I have sworn unto your fathers, to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, as it is this day. Then I answered and I said, So be it, O Lord. Then the Lord said unto me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear ye the words of this covenant, and do them. For I earnestly protested unto your fathers in the day that I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, even unto this day, rising early and protesting, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they obeyed not, nor inclined their ear but walked everyone in the imagination of their evil heart. Therefore, I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do. But they did them not. And the Lord said unto me, A conspiracy is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They are turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, which refused to hear my words, and they went after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will bring evil upon them, which they shall not be able to escape. And though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. Then shall the cities of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem go and cry unto the gods unto whom they offer incense. But they shall not save them at all in the time of their trouble. For according to the number of the cities were thy gods, O Judah, and according to the number of the streets of Jerusalem, have ye set up altars to that shameful thing, even altars to burn incense unto Baal. You could also read Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 16 through 21. Israel disobeyed God's law committed to Moses. They committed idolatry and injustice and more. And so, as the biblical story goes, they were sent into exile to Assyria and Babylon and beyond. God, though, remained faithful to Israel, even though their unfaithfulness and he promised to her a new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 through 34 and in Ezekiel chapter 16 verses 59 through 63. This new covenant would be like the covenant through Moses in that it would fulfill the covenant to Abraham. But this new covenant would not be like the covenant through Moses and Abraham in one important respect. It would not be conditional on their obedience, but it would be based solely on God's love and faithfulness. Many of the New Testament writers pick up on this new covenant motif, and they all insist that Jesus is the one who brings in this new covenant. To use Paul's language, Jesus is the descendant, the seed, in Galatians 3.16, of Abraham, who fulfills the promise God gave to Abraham, the promise of blessing for Abraham's descendants and blessing for all the peoples of the earth. But here is the kicker. Paul does not appeal to a new covenant. He appeals to that promise given to Abraham, not that which was covenanted to Abraham, because that covenant only pertains to Abraham's direct descendants. And yes, the Abrahamic covenant is conditional. Abraham and his descendants had to be circumcised, and failure to be circumcised meant that they did not place themselves under Abraham's covenant. So it is conditional, folks. But Paul bypasses the covenant. Paul goes to God's promise to Abraham and states that it is fulfilled through Jesus. And that Jews and Gentiles, a Gentile being a non-Jew, can be blessed by that singular seed of Abraham, and they become heirs to that promise to Abraham. Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29 state, There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15 state, You, the Gentiles, were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two. Through Jesus, God's promise to Abraham is fulfilled. The blessing given to the few is given to all. Jesus is a blessing to all people. Through Jesus, God is making a new humanity that does not divide between us and them. A new humanity that together receives the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. This new humanity is called the body of Christ, and it is not part of Israel, nor is it under Israel's covenants. It is blessed via promise alone. While the New Testament refers to Abraham and the Abrahamic promise, the specific covenant of land is never explicitly mentioned. Scholars have long scratched their heads at this, but considering Paul's broader perspective, this seems to be the most likely reason. The land and national statements to Abraham constitute the Abrahamic covenant. And all covenants have conditions, and all covenants only apply to Israel. The condition was circumcision, which would go on to become incorporated into the Mosaic covenant as well. Circumcision made by hands in the flesh would identify the individual who was part of the covenant. In other words, the land. The children of Abraham receive is dependent upon them identifying themselves with Abraham via circumcision, according to Genesis chapter 17. To put this yet another way, the fulfillment of the land covenant to Abraham is really a return to God's original purpose for Israel to be a kingdom of priests, according to Exodus chapter 19. And here is my second claim. God is not dealing with Israel in any capacity today. But rather, he is dealing with the body of Christ, the church of this present dispensation. In Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, God tells Moses, And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, thy firstborn. Clearly stated, God viewed the children of Israel as one body and refers to them in the singular as one, as his own son. By a way of illustration, The children of Israel can be viewed as like a large corporation today, which consists of thousands of people, but nevertheless is considered by law as a single corporate entity and to be dealt with as such. Many individual Israelites will be found in both the Old and New Testaments, who by faith were obedient to God's word, but many others were unfaithful and disobedient. As when a corporation today suffers because an individual member thereof violates the law, so the nation of Israel as a whole suffered because of the improper actions of one or a few or many individuals that were were part of that nation. An example of when the entire nation suffered because of the disobedience of one man is found in Joshua chapter 7, when Achan took property from the defeated enemy, which God had forbidden. By keeping in mind Israel's identity as God's son, we can better understand his dealing with that nation. This understanding will also provide some insight. Into our relationship with God today, as members of the body of Christ. God's blessing to Israel was first given to Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob, who was renamed Israel. The children of Israel were saved from starvation by Joseph in Egypt, and at first lived there in comfort and with plenty. However, after the death of Joseph and the Pharaoh under whom he served, the Hebrews became slaves and suffered greatly. Sometime later, God appointed Moses the leader by which he saved Israel from death and bondage in Egypt. In this role, Moses was a type of Christ, and as such, his actions foreshadowed and pictured what the Lord Jesus Christ ultimately will complete in fact. Later on, under King David, Israel won many victories over their enemies, and David although far from being perfect, was a type of and pictured the Lord Jesus Christ as the king under whom all of Israel's enemies will someday indeed be defeated. However, despite the deliverance from death and bondage as well as victory over enemies that God gave through Moses, David, and other leaders, Israel repeatedly lost faith in God's word and disobeyed his law, which brought captivity, slavery, and suffering to them, time after time. After Moses and David, Israel looked forward to a Messiah, an anointed one, who would finally and in fact deliver them from death and bondage and sit on the throne of David. See Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 and 26 for one such reference. To the promised Messiah in the Old Testament. During the earthly ministry of Jesus, it was clear to some in Israel that he was indeed the promised Messiah. Just consider John chapter 1 and verses 40 and 41, which reads, One of the two which heard John the Baptist speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon, and says unto him, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. John chapter four verses twenty five and twenty six states The woman says unto him, I know that Messiah comes, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus says unto her, I that speak unto thee am He thus. Jesus himself revealed he was Israel's I Am. It is such their promised Messiah. Although some individual Jews believed and accepted Jesus as their Messiah, the entirety of the nation as a whole nevertheless rejected him. Israel's leaders went about to kill him several times, And finally, but only at God's appointed time, they were successful and turned him over to the government of Rome for crucifixion. However, he arose from the dead and by God's grace was offered to Israel again as their Messiah, the account of which is recorded in the early part of the book of Acts. Again. A group of individual Jews believed in their Messiah, but alas, Israel as a corporate entity rejected him yet again. This time, Israel signaled their rejection by stoning Stephen to death, he being then one of Messiah's principal spokesmen. Subsequently, God saved one of his principal antagonists, Saul of Tarsus, who he renamed Paul, and then set aside his exclusive dealings with Israel as a nation for a season. It was to the Apostle Paul that God revealed a secret, which had not been known to man before. For whereas it had been well known from prophecy that Israel was to be blessed by God, It had never been revealed that the Gentiles who were outside the covenants made to Israel would be made part of one body in Christ and would be blessed with all spiritual blessings in and among the celestials. Nor had it been known that by his death on the cross, Christ would make believers in him, whether Jew and Gentile, one new man, one, new, humanity, and make of the two a temple in which the Lord dwells through the Spirit. All you need to do is just read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 through 22, and Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 to see this as the nation of Israel was dealt with as God's children up until they were set aside for a time. So all who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ since then are part of one living, breathing organism, a living body called the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 5, so we being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. And later we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27 goes on to say, Now ye, or all of you, are the body of Christ and members in particular? Whereas God was not always pleased with his child Israel, he is well pleased with his son Jesus Christ, according to Matthew chapter three verse seventeen, in Matthew chapter seventeen verse five, and Mark chapter one verse eleven, and second Peter chapter one verse seventeen. It is important for me to note that the body of Christ is not Israel, and the body of Christ did not replace Israel as a nation. Although it has been almost 2,000 years since God set Israel aside and began the body of Christ, he will not forget his covenants to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses to bless Israel as a nation. In Romans chapters 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul explains how Israel was and still is set aside as God's chosen nation only for a time, but that all the promises that he made to that nation about their restoration and establishing a new covenant with them will someday be fulfilled literally and completely. The yet future accomplishment of Israel's restoration is prophesied by the Apostle John, as recorded in the book of Revelation. Today, God is not dealing with nations per se, but he is dealing with a living, breathing, living organism called the body of Christ. And as members of the body of Christ today, we have much for which to be thankful. Whereas the nation of Israel prospered only when all were obedient and suffered because of the lack of faith and disobedience of a few, the identity of the body of Christ today is in Christ. And we depend not on the faith and obedience of every member of the body, but on Christ's own perfection. We as members of the body of Christ do have a responsibility to live in a manner consistent with our standing therein. But each of us can say with the Apostle Paul the words of Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To become members of the body of Christ, we must believe and place our faith in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-4, through 4, which states, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. Pay attention now. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Our ongoing relationship as such is not dependent on the sometimes faltering strength of our own faith, as was Israel's, because we live by the faith of the Son of God who loved and gave himself for us. Because God is not dealing with the nation of Israel today. What we see in the land of Palestine is not the biblical Israel. It is not the fulfillment of her plan through rebirth as a nation. And it, and that born again nation is still future, waiting for God to again shift his dealings back to her after he removes us at the rapture. Good day, and God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast.